Uh, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Our passage for this morning is 1 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 13. For just about a year and a half now, I've been pushing the idea of evangelism pretty hard. It started in, in September of 2018 with a short series on the kingdom parables of Matthew 13. After that, we spent 10 to 11 months in the book of Philippians in a series entitled The Evangelistic Psyche. In September of this past year, we took a short look at Christ's mission mandates from Matthew 10, and then now, finally, we've been talking about the Christian's engagement with the world in 1 Corinthians 1 through 3. The reason for this focus should be fairly obvious. This is our mission in the world. We've been redeemed by Christ, not simply to live for ourselves, but to live for God and for His glory. In short, we've been redeemed to worship. And one of the primary ways that we do that this side of heaven, if not even the primary way, is through the proclamation of the gospel. It's by calling sinners to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is obviously something that we must all excel in as Christians. And so, as I've explained in the past, this is something that I've wondered, you know, if we need to be looking at this, trying to uh, excel at this. Is this something maybe even we're weak at? And so I've thought this is probably something that we should take some time to look at. I've mainly tried to address this topic by looking at the heart of evangelism, and even more, most specifically, the fear that we so often experience in evangelism. I tend to think that this is the chief obstacle in evangelism. It's either that or apathy. The problem really isn't that we don't know how to share our faith per se. It's rather that we're afraid to, or again, I think very often we don't care to. Basically, it's not something that really crosses our mind. It's not on our radar. We don't think to do it. If you had to ask me which of these two are the main contributor to the lack of evangelism in the church at large, I would probably say apathy. The church is increasingly apathetic about their faith. There's this prevalent attitude of what can God do for me, rather what can I do for God, how can I glorify His name, Basically, we're religiously self-centered people, and the result of that self-centeredness is that I think many Christians are simply too preoccupied with their own concerns and worries to care very much about whether or not the gospel is going out to other people. I have to say, though, I don't think that's probably the main issue with this church. As I interact with you, I can see that there's an obvious desire to share the gospel. It's apparent that you're not only thinking actively about how to serve the Lord, but I know that many of you are actively thinking about how to share your faith as well. So if the problem is an apathy, then what is it? If this is something that we're struggling with, then why would we struggle with it? And I think, to say, I think it's probably fair to say that the most likely answer would be fear. I think if I were to ask you right now, why don't you share your faith? 
I think it's very possible that the first answer that comes to your mind is because I don't know how. But let's be honest. What you really mean by that is because I don't know how to do it in a way that people still like me. I don't know how to do it without experiencing any negative consequences for it. That's what we really mean when we say, I wish someone could teach me how to evangelize. Most of the times, what we mean is, I wish someone could teach me how to do it without it being so painful. And listen, I get it. I'm with you. I'm the same way. If you were to turn around and you were to ask me, well, why don't you share your faith more often, Ryan? I'd tell you. Number one, it's because I'm too self-centered and worldly. I get too consumed in the moment, too consumed with my thing, that I fail to see some of the opportunities that are right there around me to tell people about Christ. And then number two, it's because I'm afraid. It's because, quite honestly, I get tired of feeling like the bad guy all the time, of, of telling other people why they need to repent of their idolatry and believe in Christ. I think you can probably understand what I'm saying here. I actually want to encourage people, right? I want to give them good news. I would think that's how we should think as Christians. If we love people, then I'd gather we want to encourage them, not discourage them. In short, we want them to be happy. We want them to experience blessing. The problem is that while the gospel is most definitely good news, there's some stuff on the front end of that message that's very often not perceived that way. The judgment of God, repentance from sin, the idea that there are things you enjoy that you may need to give up to follow Jesus, that's often perceived as bad news. And so a lot of times it works out the exact opposite of how I intend it, right, when I share my faith. I mean to be helpful, but then the feedback I get is that what I'm saying is not helpful. There's this contradiction between what I'm trying to achieve and what actually happens. There's this expectation, you might say, that isn't met. And it's that gap, that gap between what I expect to happen and what actually happens that leaves me disappointed and discouraged. Again, I get it. I know how it works. I struggle with the same thing too. And so my approach here during the past year plus has been to primarily address that, to discuss that fear that keeps you from sharing your faith. And this morning... I'm going to make one last gasp effort at addressing that fear before moving on to what Paul has to tell us in the rest of this letter. You see, Paul isn't actually addressing evangelism in this letter, not primarily. I know it probably sounds that way from the way I've been talking to you over the past few months. I've entitled this series, Christ in the World, for instance, because I think that the main issue that Paul is addressing in this letter is how the Christian is supposed to engage the world. That can probably sound like what I'm saying is that Paul is going to show us how to engage the world with the gospel, how to be an influence on the world for the sake of Christ. You take some of what we've covered so far in this letter. I mean, you go back to chapters 1 and 2, for instance, where Paul says, when I preach the gospel, I preach it like this. And it can certainly seem so far that Paul's main concern 
has been how can we as a church influence the world? That's actually not what Paul is concerned about, though. His concern is actually less with the church's influence on the world and more with the world's influence on the church. Do you understand it's the opposite direction? Paul's not trying to articulate how the church can infect the world with the gospel. He's trying to keep the church from being infected by the germ of worldliness. This is actually largely why I've picked this letter for our church. As I've surveyed our cultural landscape and as I'm trying to understand what the church needs to be a witness in this world, I've come to the conclusion that we need to be focusing on our defense just as much as we are on our offense. The culture is shifting, right? I think that's obvious to all of us. What was once considered a Christian culture is soon becoming post-Christian. And as this shift is taking place, the church is feeling more and more pressure from the outside to adapt to the currents of our culture. And so if we're going to reach the world with the gospel, then we need to not only be active in engaging the world with the gospel, but quite frankly, we need to learn how to hold on to what we've got. In other words, if I could borrow an image that I used in last week's message, we need to learn to function as stewards of the mysteries of God. We need to learn how to manage what's been entrusted to us and not lose it. Still, this isn't to say that what we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians doesn't have some bearing on evangelism. After all, if you think about why you may be hesitant to share your faith and why the church seems so susceptible to the world's influence, I think you'll realize that it's often the same attitude that's at the root of both, and that's fear. In fact, I'd venture to say that it's actually because we perceive the cultural shifts taking place around us that we shut down before even verbalizing our faith. I mean, it's not like, I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's not like we, we shut down only after people have rejected us. No, often it's before. And that's because we can sense how the mood towards Christianity has changed. And we can sense it to the degree that we actually anticipate rejection before it even happens. We expect to be rejected. Listen, it's the same fear that's making many Christians feel this pressure to adapt not just what they say, but how they live, to fit the expectations of the culture. So if you don't mind, I want to hammer this point home one more time, this idea of fear and how we're supposed to respond to it. I want to hammer this point home one more time before we move on to the main point that Paul is trying to communicate in this letter. I want to talk with you about your evangelistic fear. If you stop and think about it, there are at least a couple of different reasons why we may be afraid to share our faith. The first reason basically has to do with our selfishness. Either we perceive that there may be some tangible consequences of sharing our faith, or we're so afraid of what, and we're so afraid of what we may lose if we share the gospel, you know, um, that we just don't share our faith. You think along the lines of uh, the persecution that many early Christians experienced, for instance, and we fear something along those lines. It may not be imprisonment or death that we fear necessarily. But still, it's something that we want. 
which we know may be taken from us if we share our faith. A, a job promotion maybe or a sale, something like that. Either we fear that or, quite simply, what we want is to be praised by men. We want to be liked and we're afraid that we won't be liked respected, approved of, if we share our faith, and so we don't share our faith. Either way, our fear is rooted in our selfishness in those scenarios. We're loving ourselves and our own comfort more than we love other people. That's why we won't warn them about the judgment of God. It's because as terrifying as that judgment is, what's actually more terrifying for us is the discomfort we'll experience if they don't accept our message. Obviously, this is sin, and, and if that's what's going on, we need to confess that and repent. But I don't think that's the only thing factoring into our fear. I think our fear can also arise out of a set of misguided expectations. I alluded to this a moment ago. I think about my own evangelistic fear, and I can see that it partly arises out of my fear of man. Basically, I want to be liked, and I know I'm not going to be liked if I share my faith, but related to that, and on a somewhat separate wavelength, I want to help people, right? But then I, I get this feedback that says I'm not helpful. And those two ideas are somewhat related, right? My desire to be liked is partly rooted in the idea that I do mean well. And I want to help people. And I want them to know that. I'm not trying to hurt them. I'm trying to help them. And so when I hear back, stop it, I don't like this, leave me alone, I'm a little bit confused. I want to help this person, but they're saying that what I'm telling them hurts and that's, that it's unpleasant. You know, do you go forward in that situation? Do you retreat? I think this can factor into our fear as well, this confusion about the intent behind our proclamation of the gospel and the actual result. Well, in this morning's message, we're going to address the second of these reasons. I've tried to address the sort of selfishness that can produce evangelistic fear in the past. This morning, we're going to deal with the expectations. I said last week that Paul provides us with three images in this chapter which should help us understand how we ought to interact with the world and its wisdom. The first image we looked at last week, and that was stewardship. Our aim shouldn't be to win the approval of the world. We're not even free to cater to our own desires in our ministry of the gospel. Instead, we should see ourselves as stewards of the mysteries of God, meaning our job is to take care of what's been entrusted to us. Our aim is to be found pleasing by our master, to be found faithful. We found that image in verses 1 through 7 of this morning's chapter. Now in verses 8 through 13, we find the second image, and that's spectacle. We should see ourselves as a spectacle to be marveled at and even abused by the world. As Paul continues to rebuke the Corinthians for their rivalries, worldliness, and pride, he says, verses 8 through 13, Already you have what you want. Already you've become rich. Without us you've become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. 
We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. For several weeks now, we've been tracking Paul's response to this report that he's received from Chloe's people concerning the rivalries that are taking place in the Corinthian church. That response started back in chapter 1, verse 10. And it actually continues all the way through this morning's passage and up to the very end of chapter 4. These rivalries aren't Paul's primary concerns when he writes. And yet he understands that they're a major obstacle to the issues that he does want to address with the Corinthians in this letter. Those issues have to do with the proper application of the Corinthians' faith. I've mentioned this before. The Corinthians have written to Paul asking him to clarify his positions on a few key areas, and Paul is writing to answer those questions. However, after Paul hears about these rivalries, he realizes that he has a major problem on his hands, and that's the Corinthians' questioning of his authority. This is what the rivalries ultimately signify. The Corinthians have broken down into these various camps. The church isn't divided per se. They're all still meeting together as one. And yet there seems to be a kind of competition taking place within the church as various members of the body are aligning themselves with one teacher or another. It would seem that the Corinthians haven't yet fully grasped that Christ alone is the authority in the church. and Instead, it would seem they perceive that these various teachers are coming along and each building on top of what Christ has started, each according to their own interpretation of the faith. They may even see these various teachers as representative of various spiritual gifts and abilities. And not only are they competing with each other by trying to align themselves with the teacher that they think affords them with the greatest number of advantages, both spiritually and socially, but on the whole... They're mostly electing not to align themselves with Paul. Again, we've covered this before. There's this other teacher that's visited since Paul first ministered to them, a man by the name of Apollos. And this man is not only a very gifted speaker, but it appears he had a very effective ministry in Corinth. And so now the Corinthians, by and large, aren't so sure that they really agree with Paul. They're not so sure that they want to follow his pattern of ministry. And this is obviously going to present some problems for what Paul has to tell them a little later on in this letter. And so before Paul moves on to these other issues, he realizes that the first thing he needs to do is reassert his authority over the church. He does this first by addressing the style and even the content of his ministry in chapters 1 through 2. And this then leads to the second phase of Paul's response to these rivalries. That happens in chapter 3 where he starts to shift from defense to offense by pointing out that a lot of their problem lies in the fact that they're still thinking and acting like natural people. Essentially, they're acting as if there is no such thing as the Spirit of God or that at the very least they're not indwelt by the Spirit of God. And it's this error that's leading many of these Christians to misinterpret much of Paul's ministry. In other words, Paul explains the problem isn't him, it's them. They're the ones 
who are misunderstanding the fundamentals of the faith. They're the ones, therefore, who can't keep up with Paul as he tries to move into the more advanced doctrines of the faith. And the evidence of all of this, he points out, is their rivalries. These rivalries not only demonstrate that the Corinthians don't understand how God is working in the church, but they also demonstrate that they're still functioning according to a very worldly set of priorities. Just how they reflect a worldly set of priorities we see perhaps most clearly in this morning's passage. I mentioned last week that here in chapter 4, Paul reaches a very pointed and emotionally intense conclusion to this section. Well, this particular clump of verses right here is the very climax of that conclusion. It's where Paul takes the gloves off and begins to really lay into the Corinthians and rebuke them for their way of thinking. The sarcasm is biting. He says in verses 8 through 9, Already you have what you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. If you recall, I've said throughout our time in 1 Corinthians that the root of the Corinthians' rivalries and worldliness is their pride. I've said that there's a sense in which their pride reveals their worldliness. It's a demonstration of the fact that they're functioning according to the values and priorities of this age. But even more than this, it's actually at the root of their worldliness. They want to be seen as superior. Again, they're competing with one another, and this is leading them to embrace non-Christian concepts as a way of distinguishing themselves from their brothers and sisters in Christ. In the words of verse 6, they're going beyond what is written. And they're doing this as a way of showing off how much more they know than their brothers and sisters in Christ. Unfortunately, the result of this pride and this willingness to go beyond what is written is that the Corinthians have actually come to think that they've even surpassed the Apostle Paul. Again, this is really why they're beginning to question Paul's authority. It's because they actually think of themselves as, quote-unquote, more spiritual than Paul, not less spiritual. They think they know more than Paul. And what we discover here is that it wasn't just Paul's teaching that led to this belief, but his way of life. As I'm sure you all know, the Apostle Paul suffered greatly for his faith. He came into uh, town uh, preaching this foolish message, and he wasn't just rejected for it, but very often he was persecuted. The Corinthians, by contrast, seemed to be enjoying a measure of comfort and even acceptance among their peers. And as they're trying to account for the difference between Paul's way of life and theirs, they've come to the conclusion that it's because of their superior knowledge their superior spirituality. Meaning they think the reason why the world accepts them is because they've advanced in the faith enough that they're able to demonstrate how reasonable and sophisticated Christianity really is. The reason why Paul suffers the way he does is because he's not yet able to match that level of sophistication. In other words, they think the reason why Paul suffers so much is because he's bad at what he does. He lacks the giftedness they have. He lacks the wisdom 
they have. If only he could learn to think and act like them, then he wouldn't have to suffer to the degree he does. And honestly, you can sort of see where they're coming from. I mean, if you're not operating according to the parameters of what Paul says in chapters 1 and 2, if you take the Holy Spirit out of it and begin thinking in strictly natural terms, then you can see where they think that Paul's suffering is coming from a lack of skill. After all, with every other kind of knowledge, we just sort of assume that if it's true, then it's objective, meaning if something, it's something that anyone can see. It's just a matter of proving it. That's, that's how we think of scientific knowledge, for instance, or historical knowledge, even philosophical knowledge to a certain level. I mean, the good lawyer wins their cases, right? Because they can demonstrate to the judge and the jury the merits of their case. The bad lawyer loses, not necessarily because their client is guilty, but because they lack the skill to prove their innocence. That's what the Corinthians think is happening with Paul. And again, this is a demonstration of the fact that they're thinking on more or less natural terms. Of course, Paul has already explained to them the error in this kind of thought. And so now, as he moves into the climax and conclusion of this section, he begins to openly rebuke them for their arrogance and pride. He points to the relative comfort that they're experiencing in contrast to himself, and he declares... Already you have what you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. Basically, Paul looks ahead to what will happen at the return of Christ, and he's pointing out that by the way they're thinking, the Corinthians are acting as if that time has already arrived. That's the significance of this word already. He's saying already you have what you want. Already you've become rich. And in that, he's pointing ahead to the return of Christ. And again, he's being sarcastic. It would seem that the Corinthians do still realize that their hope is yet future. They don't actually think that they're reigning with Christ. And yet what Paul is wanting to point out is that by their conduct, they're acting as if that time had already arrived. He's pointing out how greatly their way of life blatantly contradicts what they say they believe. The sarcasm continues into the rest of verse 8 and on into verse 9 as Paul declares, And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. I hope you can see the irony in this statement. Paul is pointing to his position as an apostle He's pointing to his position as someone who in the church and presumably in Christ's kingdom occupies a position of authority and importance. And yet so far from experiencing the comfort that the Corinthians experience, he instead occupies a position of turmoil, humiliation, and suffering. He's pointing to the authority that he holds within the church and the example that he's supposed to set for them. And he's pointing out how different it is from the way of life that they're experiencing. Here is Paul, a leader in the church, an apostle actually, and he isn't experiencing anything close to the kind of respect and comfort that the Corinthians are experiencing. It's a statement that's contrived to to demonstrate how absolutely ridiculous the Corinthians' way of thinking is. 
Not only does it reflect what theologians sometimes call an over-realized eschatology, meaning not only does it reflect a way of thinking that tries to bring into the present things that are yet still future for the Christian, but it completely inverts the the teacher-student relationship. If I could put it this way, the Corinthians are forgetting who they're talking to here. And Paul's letting them know it. Paul isn't some second-rate Sunday school teacher. He's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrected Jesus himself actually appeared to Paul and commissioned him to go and preach the gospel among the Gentiles. This man has been authorized and empowered by God to proclaim the gospel. And here they are thinking, oh, if only Paul were a little more like us. Paul's telling them in no uncertain terms, do you realize how stupid you sound right now? That's not how this works. I'm not supposed to be like you. You're supposed to be like me. And so if our way of life isn't matching up, guess who's got it wrong? It's not me. It's you. You're the one who doesn't get it. And just so you know, if you think I'm being extreme in the way I'm phrasing this, I'm not. Verse 14, after this, Paul has to clarify, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. You can see the the authority that he's expressing in this statement. And not only that, but it's apparent that the stuff he's saying here is supposed to sting to the point that they could come away from this absolutely humiliated by how foolish and stupid they look. That's Paul's point. He's mocking them here. So by and large here, the idea is that Paul is supposed to be the leader in this relationship. His Life sets the pattern for what Christianity is supposed to look like, not theirs. So now, what does Paul's life look like? What's the pattern that they're supposed to follow? I think you see the answer in verse 9. He is a spectacle. He says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. The image that Paul evokes here is a very specific one. I'd imagine that when you think of this word spectacle, you probably think of some big production that's aimed to awe or amaze its audience. Uh, I think of a fireworks display, for instance, or a magician's performance, a circus. These are all things that we would define as spectacles. So when Paul uses this word spectacle, you probably sense that he's saying that we're supposed to be marveled at. And and this is true. This is partly the idea that Paul is trying to communicate, and yet it goes farther than that. You see, at the beginning of verse 9, Paul makes a reference to something that we don't practice in today's culture, and that's the Roman victory parade, also known as a Roman triumph. In the ancient world, uh, whenever a, a great general returned from a victorious campaign, he would re-enter the city of Rome in this grand procession to celebrate his victory. And at the head of this procession would be the Roman Senate. Behind that would come a company of trumpeters announcing the general's arrival. Then would come carts filled with the spoils of war. 
These would be followed by more musicians and a selection of white bulls to be sacrificed at the end of the procession in the Temple of Jupiter. There would be exotic animals captured from the foreign lands where the general conducted his campaigns. And weapons and insignia of captured enemies would follow that. And then finally, just before the victorious army itself entered the city, with the general riding at its head, would come the captives. These were usually enemy leaders and their families. And they were paraded before the general right in front of him as a demonstration of his superior power. And these enemies, the very last of the procession to enter into the city before the general, they were typically sentenced to die in a grand display in the Colosseum sometime after the triumph. I mean, you can only imagine what that would be like to be paraded before these cheering crowds who are celebrating your defeat and knowing that in perhaps a matter of hours they'll cheer yet again as you're torn to pieces by wild animals in the arena. It's probably one of the worser fates imaginable. And Paul is saying that's what we seem to be as apostles. It feels like God has called us to live as that. Again, you can see the irony in this statement here is Paul reminding the Corinthians that as an apostle, they're supposed to follow his example. But where are they in this grand procession? They're either up with the senators at the very front of the procession or really they're up riding in the general's chariot because they're actually joining the world in deriding Paul in his ministry. In short, with this image, Paul is letting them know you're on the wrong side. When you mock us, when you call us inferior and reject us, you're standing on the side of the world. You're joining the other side. The point being, while Paul does see himself as an object to be marveled at by the world, it's most definitely not in the sense of admiration. Instead, as he tries to understand the position he holds in the world, the role that he's supposed to play, it's as an object of scorn and derision. And it's the same for you, Christian. As you wrestle with how you should try to reach the world with the gospel and as you try to think through your expectations as to what's supposed to happen when you proclaim Christ, this is the image that should be playing in your mind. You should hear cheers, but they're not cheers celebrating your victory. They're not cheers celebrating your wisdom and your might and your honor. They're cheers celebrating your defeat. Their cheers celebrating even your impending death. I understand that this doesn't sound very cheerful. This is not an encouraging message for me to share with you here this morning, but I'll tell you it is an essential one if you want to learn to be a good steward of the message that's been entrusted to you. Jesus has already told us the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. This is not a popular message. In fact, the very founder of our faith was crucified for proclaiming this message. And if you don't understand this, if you don't expect people to reject this message, then you're going to end up very confused and discouraged once you start sharing your faith. 
Again, we share our faith because we want to help, but quite often that's not how it's received. This can learn, lead a person to second guess, to wonder if they're doing it right. They may even start to think, like the Corinthians, if only I could package the, the message in a way that's a little bit more acceptable, then I wouldn't be so hated by the world. Listen, friends, Paul reminds us right here, this is how our leaders, how our examples in the faith were regarded by the world, not as heroes to be adored, but as a spectacle to be mocked and jeered at. You're not off track if people find your message offensive. Instead, you're very much on track. Everything is actually going precisely according to plan. You don't need to change the message. You don't need to adapt or adjust to the world's expectations. No, what you need to do then is to persevere, to continue living as a spectacle before the world. And there's, I think, so much that we could say about the, at this point about why God has done it this way. This is always the part that really fascinates me personally. I think it's just crazy that God actually means for the church to suffer for the gospel. But the goal for today is to address your expectations. And so I'm going to try to address these reasons as we go, why God has designed it this way. But with the time we have left, I really want to focus on using the rest of this passage to provide you with three expectations that you should have as a spectacle on behalf of Jesus Christ. Again, three expectations you should have as a spectacle on behalf of Jesus Christ. The first expectation is this, derision. Derision, the spectacle should expect to be derided by the world. This one is perhaps the most obvious. The citizens of Christ's kingdom shouldn't expect to be praised or admired by the world. No, they should expect to be mocked. They should expect to be regarded as defeated and foolish and overcome by the world. And this is what we see expressed by Paul in verse 10. He continues, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. If you're paying attention, you may recall that the three characteristics that Paul lists here, wisdom, strength, and honor, they're the same three characteristics that Paul brings up at the end of chapter 1 when he informs the Corinthians that God has chosen the foolish in the world to shame the wise, the weak in the world to shame the strong, the low and despised in the world, the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Well, if you remember that, then you can probably sense the sarcasm here once again. The fact is the Corinthians were not actually any of these things. They were not wise in the world or held in honor. Paul actually makes note of the fact that very few of them were this way when they came to Christ. And that's all by God's design. God actually means to destroy the world's arrogance by saving through what is considered to be worthy of dishonor. That was Paul's point back in chapter 1, and this partly explains why God means for the church to suffer. God wants His church to suffer because He means to display His power by saving through a low and despised people. Not the high and the mighty and the powerful and the respected. The problem is that, low though they may be, the Corinthians were apparently yet still high enough, if only in their own minds, to think that they're better than Paul. Here, Paul reminds them of the role they're supposed to play in the world, and that's not as an object of admiration, but one of scorn and derision. They're not to be held in honor, but in disrepute. 
That's the example that he set for them. And again, this is all according to God's design. God actually wants it to be this way because he means to save through a despised and rejected people. Friends, I tell you, this is gold right here, what Paul is saying. I can tell you that personally, when it comes to persevering in the work of the ministry and continuing to proclaim the gospel, even when it's rejected, there is perhaps no more thought that I have found to be more helpful than this one right here. You see, I'm often discouraged in ministry. Again, I'm, I'm like you. I try to help people. I get rejected, and then I get discouraged. And you know, it's not just the lack of fruit that's discouraging. The proclaiming and then getting nothing back. It's the rejection. In fact, I don't know if you recall, but a couple months back I told you how very tired I had become in ministry during the past year and a half or so. I told you I found myself in a kind of spiritual depression for the very first time that I could remember. Well, it wasn't just the perceived lack of fruit that led me into that. You know, me believing that I was responsible for things that the Scripture tells me that I'm not responsible for. Thinking that I was more than just a steward. It wasn't just that. It was partly the enemies that I've made over the years as well. Now, to be clear, these are not people that I consider to be my enemies, meaning it's not that I harbor any ill will towards them necessarily, but there are some people that I know don't particularly like me. Either they think me a religious zealot, uh, an extremist who takes things too far, or, interestingly enough, they think me not extreme enough. As someone who's willing to make compromises for expediency's sake, either way, I've gotten reports you know, to me, uh, sent back to me over the years about what's said to me, sort of a, you know, so-and-so told me that so-and-so said this. And, and I understand that that's all just the tip of the iceberg of what I'm hearing. And if I'm being honest, I'm often crushed by it. And maybe that's just fear of man, but I mean, really, it comes to do with the fact that I want to help people. Like, you understand, I, d I didn't enter into ministry and decide to plant a church in a semi-rural community because I was seeking glory, right? I did it because I wanted to help people. And then I get these reports of people I tried to help, that I tried to minister the Word of God to, attacking my ministry. And in my mind, I'm going, I'm a giant failure. I've messed up. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm bringing dishonor to the name of Christ. The church would be better off without me. But you know what? There was this one particular morning when this thought lifted. I don't remember the specific day, but I can remember it was a Sunday. I was praying before church, just confessing to God my hurt. And if I'm being completely honest, my desire to even flee the situation. I was thinking to myself, you know, oh, if I could just pick up and go to a new church and just start over without the kind of stigma that I perceived was hanging over my ministry, everyone would be so much better off. And you know what came to my mind as I was thinking about that? It was this passage. I was preparing to preach 1 Corinthians and I realized, wait a second, this is the exact same thing that happened to Paul in Corinth. Even when Paul did everything right, there were people who rejected his ministry, even within the church. There were people who looked down on Paul and derided what he did. And just like that, I realized, oh, that's right. No matter what I do, 
I'm always going to have enemies. I can't run from this. No matter where I go, there are going to be people who don't like me if I'm standing for the truth. People who think I don't know what I'm doing, people who think I'm making mistakes, just because that's part of the territory of being a good steward of the gospel. So best just buckle in and brace myself. I know that sounds simple, like something I should have known already, and I, and I mean I did know that, but there are still things that we can forget from time to time, right? And, and that was something that I had happened to forget in those moments. Now, I do want to be clear here. I'm not trying to make myself out to be a saint. I realize I've made mistakes in my ministry too, some of which I probably have made. I'm still making without realizing it. And I know that sometimes the reason why people don't like me is because of my sin. I think that's important to recognize here. I don't mean to say that you should just interpret any rejection that you experience as suffering for the sake of Christ, because the truth is you may be suffering on account of your own sin. And there's nothing commendable about that. We're told quite explicitly, 1 Peter 4.15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. There's no credit on suffering on account of the evil that you do. And sometimes that is the reason why we suffer. Still, if you're sitting here this morning hurting because of the derision you've suffered for your faith, I hope you can be comforted by this thought. You're not making a mistake. You are in good company. God intends for His people to be treated as a spectacle before the world, and that includes suffering, derision for your faith. So don't be discouraged if you're encountering that as a Christian. Instead, take heart and persevere in the stewardship of your faith. Expectation number two is want. The spectacle should expect to suffer want for their faith. That's the example that we see right here as Paul continues verse 11. He says, To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. The spectacle is obviously going to suffer more than just jeers, right? Their suffering isn't confined to the celebration that occurs as they're being paraded in the street. No, these are men and women who are sentenced to death, meaning they're actually going to lose something on account of their faith. That could be their actual physical life, like what happened with Jesus and Paul and countless other martyrs throughout the ages. More than likely, it'll be something much less than that. Like what we see Paul describing here, hunger and thirst, poorly dressed and homeless. In other words, yes, this can impact your income, right? Jesus warns of loss of family and friends as well. But however it's expressed, the disciple does suffer loss for their faith. It's not just a possibility, but on a long enough time scale, a certainty. Paul tells us, 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In fact, the threat is so great that Jesus must actually warn any potential disciples, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You're going to suffer loss. However, as great as the suffering can be, don't let that discourage you because when you suffer in this way, once again, you're in good company. Not only the apostles, not only the saints have gone before you, but even Christ himself suffered in this way for the faith. Really, all the, all the righteous <coughs> excuse me, throughout the ages have suffered in this way. 
As Christ himself tells us, Matthew 5, 11 through 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This would actually seem to be another reason why God intends for the church to suffer in this way. God wants His church to suffer because not only does the church take the shape of its Savior when it suffers for His name, but in suffering, rejection on behalf of Christ, it actually seals the world's condemnation. This is what Jesus warns the scribes and the Pharisees about in Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part in the, with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? He says, Therefore I will send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in the synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Clearly there's a purpose in this kind of suffering. There's a purpose in this spectacle. So again, don't be discouraged if you find yourself suffering loss for your faith. At least don't be discouraged to the degree that you think you're doing something wrong. Everything is going precisely according to plan. Expectation number three, unusual love. Unusual love. The spectacle displays unusual love. This expectation isn't rooted in the Roman triumph. To my knowledge, the prisoners being paraded into the Colosseum didn't typically bless their captors. But even still, that's what we find here in the Apostle Paul's example. He continues, second half of verse 12. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I think this is where the irony jumps to another level. Not so much in the passage, but what's actually happening in our suffering. I've said that Christians are to see themselves as a spectacle before the world, and that in context, this means that the world is celebrating, even marveling over our weakness, our stupidity, our defeat. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about a different kind of marveling that he expects the world to do as they engage with his disciples. In fact, right after he talks about the disciples being blessed when they're persecuted, he says, Matthew 5, 14 through 16, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it in a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He says that he expects the world to marvel, only it's not over his people's rejection, but over their righteousness. And do you know that one way that this happens, one way that the world ends up marveling over the church for their righteousness, it's by following the example that Paul sets right here. It's by suffering for your faith. 
And then as you suffer, not returning evil with evil, but returning evil with good. That's an unusual kind of love, right? I mean, to quote Romans 5, 6 through 8, For while we were still weak at the, to- at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Of course, I, just a moment ago, I said that when the church suffers, it's increasingly conformed to the image of its Savior. Well, this is never so true as when the church returns evil with good. We saw it in our scripture reading earlier this morning. After exhorting his readers to bear up patiently under injustice, Peter reminds them, he says, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is how Christ responded to persecution. The Apostle Paul, right? He's just following the example that was set for him in Christ. Think about this. The church is called the body of Christ. As we saw back in chapter 3, it is called the temple of God as well. This means that the church is supposed to be the representation of God to the world. It's supposed to reflect the beauty and glory of God to the world. Well, friends, we serve a suffering Savior. We serve a Savior who suffers on behalf of our sins, a Savior who reveals the love of God to the world by willingly going to the cross for His enemies. What this means is that if the world is going to see Him in us, then it's not only necessary that we suffer, but that we respond to that suffering with love. You understand what I'm saying here? I want you to really listen to what I'm trying to tell you. It is necessary that things be this way. You take away either component. You take away either our suffering or our response to suffering in our witness to the world about the love of Christ is lost. It's just words. This is what the Corinthians seem to be missing. They think if only Paul were more sophisticated, if only his message was a little more socially acceptable, then he wouldn't have to suffer so badly. And in part, that's true. Paul wouldn't have to suffer so badly. The only problem is that not only would God then be preaching a different message, but even the impact of that message would be lost. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power, Paul said back in chapter 1. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that once the message becomes acceptable, once the offense of the cross goes away, then the opportunity to suffer goes away. And as the opportunity to suffer goes away, so also goes the opportunity to display this supernatural, gospel-driven love. In other words, the part that really makes the world marvel, the part that that turns its jeers into cheers, that part of the gospel goes away. Because it's the love of Christ 
that's displayed through our suffering that brings conviction upon the world. So again, adjust your expectations. Don't just expect to suffer, but understand that it's expected of you that when you suffer, you will return evil with good. And again, don't dread that. Don't think that you have to suffer for the gospel. Rather, understand that this is precisely where the opportunity lies. This is when you get to put the love of Christ on display. It's not that you have to suffer. It's that you get to suffer. Because as you suffer, you get to display the supernatural love of Christ. I close this morning with a reading from Luke 23. During the course of this morning's message, I've explained that we should not only expect to suffer along with Christ, but that it's expected of us to respond to this suffering in the same way that Christ suffered. With this in mind, I close with an image of that suffering for you. The passage, once again, is Luke 23, verses 26 through 34. Christ is on His way to the cross. He's being mocked. He's going to be lifted up on the cross, made a spectacle to the world. And Luke tells us that he responded to this suffering in this way. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who are criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let's pray.